not every industry can be electrified. It's hard to electrify a steel mill. It's hard to electrify a chemical complex. It's hard to electrify a plane. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Powerscourt Friday Fix. My name is Peter Ogden, a Managing Director at Powerscourt, and I am delighted today to be joined by Roland Barn, who's Chief Executive of Topso, the Danish headquartered but very much global leader in carbon emission reduction technology. So Roland, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So look, this is an opportune time for you and I to be talking, of course, because you have relatively recently come back from Climate Week. You are about to head off to COP28. And I think there's a lot of insight that you can give you know, all our listeners into what is a, a really pivotal moment, I think, for, for the energy transition. But let's let's rewind a little bit, if you don't mind, and, and start with, with Topso. I mean, Topso is a, a venerable um, legacy name in Denmark, but, let's, but still a, a relatively unknown international business. Can you tell us a bit about Topso? It's uh, it's an old company, founded in 1940. Started out in catalysis um, technology um, to make many things happen. I, I think 70% of all processes in the world are made possible through catalysis. We um, traditionally have always focused on the petrochemical and the uh, refining industries. The company is starting from science, and from that science, the development of catalysts got to the point where the available technologies could not make complete use of the possibilities of the catalyst. So we started developing technologies. And from there on, actually, we developed a handing glove catalysis, new catalysts with new technologies, driving to higher and higher performance and quality. And that has led us to be literally the leader in our area. It's interesting to know that about one third of all ammonia produced in the world uh, goes through our technology, about a quarter of all methanol and a quarter of all hydrogen. And these are all building blocks, of course, for uh, either further chemicals or for, for fuels and, uh, in the case of ammonia, for uh, fertilizer. So a significant position there. Well, an extraordinary position, actually. And But the other interesting thing I wanted to touch on before we really get into the nitty gritty of Climate Week and and, uh, and COP28 is, is your, your background as well. I mean, you're a steel man and obviously a proud Dutchman as well. How did you end up, you know, three years ago joining this this, this Danish business? Yeah, so... so... I'm, I have been a steel man for some time. I have spent most of my career in oil and gas. So I'm actually an oil man. Uh, yes, I've been working in, uh, in very polluting industries. I've been living in nine different countries on, uh, on, on, on three different continents. So when uh, I got to talk with Topso, it was in a, at a crossroads in my own life where I thought, okay, do I now step back from executive work and dedicate myself to helping entrepreneurs and, and uh, NGOs in their uh, climate fighting actions or in their uh, carbon reduction efforts. Um, and that was actually where I was most in my mind. Mm-hmm. And when Topso came along, I started talking with them. And although still at that moment very much embedded in the fossil world, given the fact that it, there is so much science uh, development in the company, there were a whole host of, of solutions for the energy transition on the shelf. And mm. I thought this is actually a far more direct way mm. of contributing to uh, to uh, fighting climate change. Yeah. So that was that was actually 
plus the fact that it's an incredibly interesting company. Yeah. I guess drilling down to sort of the, the management challenge here, you know, you, you've come in with a fundamental brief to affect the transition of this business, ultimately to support the, the, the decarbonisation of those hard to abate sectors. And you have you have made significant strides, albeit, you know, this isn't an easy journey, is it? Can, can you explain how you set about developing that transition strategy and how you have progressed on that journey so far? Yeah, so... so... In a way, it was relatively easy. The scientists by trade are curious and are open to new things. I think as well that the company has a very strong DNA uh, on um, doing things for society. The founder always said, that for this company, science comes first, society second, and then money third. I'm trying to move up the money bit a bit, <laughs> but that DNA doesn't change. We like to tackle issues that are societally important. Hunger which brought us into the ammonia and fertilizer business. Acid rain, which made us the leader in, yeah. uh, in, in uh, sulfur removal. So here's one of those other things that, uh, that, that was just a challenge that people react to. So when I got in, the message was, tw- was, was twofold. One is, from a business point of view, we are very strongly into a sunset industry. The sunset is very long. Uh, fossil will be used for the next three, four, five decades, but it will diminish as part of the uh, the energy mix. So you are in a business that is great at the moment, but will start diminishing in 10, 15, 20 years. So we need to have something else. And then you get to what is logical to do. Well, again, it's energy. We know the business and chemicals. We have strong technology base and we know how to solve things. So it brings you into what what is the new energy wave? And we looked at our portfolio and said, we have actually a number of uh, technologies that are ideally suited for that change. Now, that was easy. The hard part was then to have people understand the consequence. Because, of course, if you change your objective, you change the way of delivering the objectives. And that normally is you have to change your organization, yeah. which which we did. Very strong, strong changes from business unit structure into much more a, a technology-based business structure. R&D had to change significantly. So it was hard in the beginning. We were basically in that for the first nine months, 10 months, 12 months. And we saw already the, the impact we had. People were like, ah, okay, this is what it's about. And then, of course, we have been growing significantly as well. Got a lot of new people in. And it helps as well in refocus and the restructuring of that size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, uh, just in, on practical terms, you have and are now, I think, a year deep into constructing what will be the world's largest electrolyzer facility in Denmark, or, or rather a uh, fuel cell uh, facility. Can you talk a bit about that and, and what impact that will have on uh, on the energy transition, in particular, as, as we talk about those hard to abate sectors? So it's it's an electrolyzer manufacturing facility and indeed the largest of its kind. Mm. One of the big things in the energy transition, of course, is electrification. So green power is is rightfully so one of the big focus points of the energy transition. But not every industry can be electrified. It's hard to electrify a steel mill. It's hard to electrify a chemical complex. It's hard to electrify a plane. So you need to find other solutions. And these other solutions have to be such that these industries do not have to change their whole infrastructure, which will cost trillions of dollars, in order to accommodate a completely new energy source. So it has to be something that they can handle in their existing system. So this is where we are focusing on. And that brings in things like, for instance, biofuels, where we are leading in the world. 
we have in the in the, in the US we have 70% of all biodiesel and uh, bio jet fuel going through our facilities. But it is as well, let's say, the power to X sphere, and power to X is where you use green electrons to go through an electrolyzer, split water into hydrogen and oxygen. You release the oxygen, you use the hydrogen, and then the hydrogen can be either direct fuel, which is the less likely use. But it can be a building block to then create sustainable fuels or sustainable other solutions. Mm. So it is really the core. If you if you look at how the world is going to develop, in our view, in the energy transition, then you will have, for decarbonization purposes, short term, you will have a lot of bio going on because it's there and it's available. Medium term, you have maybe some what they call blue technologies where natural gas is used to take the carbon out and use the, the hydrogen that comes out that's over the rest. Yeah. Or uh, longer term, ultimately the most sustainable, the power to X solution through electrolysis. You know, these are important themes that of course were were discussed at the at Climate Week back in September. Just reflecting on Climate Week, the sense is it was a pretty positive week. A lot of optimism has come out of that. I mean, do you, did you share that? Has much come out of it that we can be excited about? It's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> hard question to answer. Yeah. So the biggest gain of Climate Week is that you see more and more involvement from the private sector as well. Yeah. So where it, of course, started as a unilateral um, between countries um, thing, it now it has a lot of businesses involved, a lot of NGOs involved. So there is a far more fluid dialogue going on. As a result, you see an injection of reality as well, mm-hmm. but you see more commitments as well. I would say that at this stage, businesses are more bold in making commitments than governments are. Yeah. And businesses are pushing governments to make sure that the right regulation and governance uh, is in place in order to make the transition happen. Because without it, it, it doesn't. Yeah. And, and politicians are, of course, always weighing what needs to be done versus what needs to be done to win an election. Yeah. And that that is a conundrum that they all str- struggle with. So that push coming from the private sector is is really necessary and is very palpable if you have been, been to several climate weeks and what you see now. Yeah. And of course, during climate week, our prime minister didn't make it out there. And it, during that period, he announced the pushing out of the EV deadline from 2030 to 2035, which I know was a big topic of discussion you know, on the floor, if you like, at, at climate week. So my sense is that was a positive uh, a week. Now, the, the big thing, of course, starts next week, which is COP28. I know Topso will be there. You will be there. What are you hoping to get out of next week? Look, if I think back to Glasgow, Uh, Mm. COP26, there was an enormous energy there and a drive that we need to do things, things can be done, we have the technology, we have the money, we have the will. It was very positive, very positive indeed. And what I call this, um, the statement that is issued at the end of the Mm -hmm. COP was was a bit diluted, but it was still big progress. And then we go to the implementation COP in Egypt, and actually it was a huge disappointment. Nothing came out, pledges were not uh, updated. Um, actually, participation was less than in Glasgow. For, I thought it was, uh, to be honest, a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. The only thing you can say is that what came up was to the fore from more the, the the hundred billion pledge that we have as as rich countries. We have been uh, not holding up to our pledge to put a hundred billion into um, fighting the, the the climate change effects. Yeah. So that was a good thing, but for the rest, actually, very little. Yeah. 
the current COP, coming COP, again, is, is ambitious in its uh, statements and what it wants to achieve. But I am going there a little bit with a, a feeling of, okay, I, I need to see what's happening there. Again, the good thing, it's probably going to be the largest COP ever. Mm-hmm. I read something somewhere that it's about 70,000 people expected to participate at one time or another, which is good. So it, it has a lot of publicity. It has a, a, a broad reach. We'll have, without any doubt, even more private sector participation this time. Uh, but it, 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 for me, it's a little bit unclear what the ultimate objective is, which mm. what is what it stands for. That's interesting. I mean, let, let's just quickly talk about the Global Renewables Alliance, of course, which I believe Topso is a signature to, or, or certainly part of, to triple renewable power by 2030. I mean, that presumably is one of those things that, that will be discussed and built upon at COP28. Yeah, and uh, rightly so, because, of course, tripling... Look, if you look at, at Europe, fit for 55, then even tripling of of renewable power capacity would probably not get you all the way there. Globally, if you think about it, for the transition alone to direct electrification, you need probably about five or six terawatts of uh, of power. Mm. You need another um, uh, five to eight for the power to X uh, bit. Um, you need ten terawatts for just the growth in power demand. So if and it has to all be renewable. So if you look at that challenge, then uh, even the the three times, although ambitious is probably not going fast enough. So it's it's undoubtedly something that needs to be pushed more and, and more broadly. Yeah. But because the, 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 the ch- I'm not saying that the challenge can't be met. met. I think it can. Mm. But it, it needs a lot of things to move. Let's finish off with just one last question, I guess, which is what would be your message to governments, policymakers around the world and maybe private sector partners in terms of you know, what is your message to them about the energy transition and decarbonisation, what, what message would you, like, would you like to give them? I'll go about from the other end, which is what do you need to have new energy sources and specifically power tracks to uh, take hold? And that is you have to have a diminishing of the green premium. Currently, if you take, for instance, e-jet fuel, uh, then you talk about four times the cost of the normal fossil jet fuel. And people vote with their wallet, right? If you ask Lufthansa, Lufthansa offers their travelers um, the option mm-hmm. of paying for sustainable fuel in their trip. Only 8% of all passengers take that up. And it's not a lot of money, but it's uh, people just, they all talk about it, but yeah. they find it difficult when it comes to uh, to paying for it. Yeah. So you have to diminish that gap. And there are two ways of diminishing that gap. One is make sure that carbon is being charged. Carbon is a pollutant. It's it's a waste product. We pay for waste disposal. As a polluter, we pay for what we pollute. But on the other hand, other than through the ETS in Europe, people do not pay what the cost is of carbon. And the social cost of carbon has been calculated between anywhere between 160 and $250 a ton. Now, put that on your fossil fuel and you already bridge a big part of that gap. And then secondly, renewables are expensive because the scale is not there. So it needs to be scaled. And this is new technology, very risky. To kickstart it, it needs to have subsidies and regulation that will help it scale fast. And when it scales fast and you get to sizable pieces of technology, then that cost will come down very, very fast. We have seen that with solar and you've seen it with things like computer chips. 
just make sure you have the size and the cost will come down. And that's the only way to bridge that gap. Governments need to put in the incentives on the one hand, but on the other hand as well, the cost of the, uh, the fossil side in order to make this transition more equal. Yeah. It will have a, a consequence, which is energy will become slightly, slightly more expensive. But that's something that I think is unavoidable. And we uh, will have to, as a society, we'll have to take that as a small cost for what the gain is going to be. Yeah. Well, look, uh, let, let's hope those policymakers are listening. And I think on that note, thank you very much for your time. Really interesting conversation. And, uh, and thank you, everyone else, to, for listening. Yeah, thank you very much, Peter.